Um, if I ever get invited back to Moody'sburn, I might like to just do one more focus on it uh, at the end of the chapter. But for now, let's look at Ruth chapter four. So Ruth chapter four, reading from verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. He removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kylon, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family and from his hometown. And today you are witnesses then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. And may you have standing in Ephratha and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Well, before we uh, look at this passage for a few minutes, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your providence at work in this story that we've read together. And uh, we thank you that your providence continues to be at work even in these strange times and difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in, in the 21st century. Thank you for the fact that the coffee house seat opens tomorrow. Thank you for uh, the 
testimony and the impact it, it has made on this community. And we pray that tomorrow as it opens up again, that you will bless and undertake. And we pray that you'll continue to use it for your glory and the extension of your kingdom in this uh, village. And we thank you, Lord, for the church being open or the fellowship here being open again. And we pray that you'll continue to bless and prosper uh, the fellowship here as it meets and as it holds out and holds up the good news uh, to this community. We pray that you'll continue to help it and bless it in the weeks which are to come. Thank you for George coming next week. We pray that you'll help him as he prepares this week. Um, thank you for helping him in recent months of ill health. We pray that you'll keep your hand upon him for good. So help us now, Lord, as we look at this passage together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ruth chapter 3 ends with... Uh, Ruth meeting Boaz uh, at the threshing floor, as you remember. She had returned with uh, Naomi, who had advised her then, she had returned from the threshing floor rather to Naomi, who had advised her to sit tight, um, basically, and to see what would happen, having asked um, Boaz to spread his wings of uh, his wings or his garment over her. Uh, the advice of her mother-in-law when she returned was basically to sit tight and to wait and see how things would transpire or, or unfold. And sure enough, uh, as we re-enter the story in chapter four, Boaz uh, identifies the other kinsman redeemer who's more closely related to Naomi's family than he, he is, or, or was, I suppose, and uh, he, he identified this gentleman, singled him out, and somehow made arrangements um, to meet him at the city gates, where the city or the town's gates was where business was transacted, and where the elders would sit, and where big decisions were made, and where judgments were settled, and so on. So, Somehow Boaz made arrangements to meet this gentleman, whether it was by chance or whether it was all set up, I'm not sure, but he made arrangements to meet this man in the presence of the elders of the town um, to push him on the matter of Ruth and Naomi, and in particular redeeming Naomi's property. Uh, it seems that the initial response, of course, was positive, but when the details of the case were explained to this nearer kinsman, he balked at the task that was before him. So Boaz instead uh, married Ruth um, before the town's elders, and of course he, they were prayed for as a couple and prayed the, the city elders prayed that the Lord would bless them and make them uh, prosper and make them fruitful. Fruitful, and so a wedding unfolds at the end of the of this little book. Um, they had been given the gift of each other, uh, Ruth and Boaz. Not only had they been given the gift of each other, but they had also, we read before the book closes, been given the gift of a son. Obed was his name. It's no small thing to become a parent, to be responsible 
for other people's lives and influencing them and directing them. And it appears that Ruth and Boaz gave themselves to that task in an admirable way. I think the wonderful thing about Ruth and Boaz is the way that they are folded in, and we read this in, in the first chapter of the book of Matthew, the way that this couple are folded into the family tree of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And the reason that that's so significant is that Boaz was the son of Rahab, and Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho when the Israelites came and took possession of the promised land. Rahab was a, a prostitute who lived in Jericho, and eventually she became a member of the covenant uh, people of God, and she gave birth to a son, and the son that she gave birth to was Boaz. And not only uh, Boaz, but also now Ruth is a Moabite. She comes from the eastern side of the River Jordan. She's from the, the people who are called Moabites, who worshipped a, a, a god called Molech and offered their children as burnt offerings to this god. Now she's been embraced in the covenant community of God, and she's she has been joined together with Boaz, and together they are given um, this son called Obed, who becomes the great-grandfather of Israel's greatest king, David. And of course, from David's family line comes the savior of the world. And it's, it's a miracle of grace how the son of a prostitute and this Moabite girl take their place in the family tree of Jesus. And I think it's there for a reason. I think the reason is to show us the all-encompassing grace of God. It's not about who we are, it's about who he is and how gracious he is. But what do we make of this chapter then as Boaz comes to redeem Naomi's household? When one of these two boys were very small, uh, one of them in particular loved books and uh, even before he could read, he loved to sit and, and uh, look at books, and uh, he would look at the pictures and try and work out what was happening in the storyline, even though he couldn't read many of the words. And preschool uh, children are fond of books with pictures because pictures tell the story, tell a story. And in many senses, the Old Testament is a bit like a picture book. It's a picture book that's telling us the story of how God is going to redeem humanity, humanity which has fallen into sin and become estranged from God, separated from God. They've become sinful and therefore uh, they can't have fellowship with this God that they were created to know. And there is a sense in which the Old Testament is a bit like a picture book. It's building a story of redemption. It's showing us how God is going to go about the process of redemption, the whole sacrificial system, for instance. It's a picture of another taking the place, a substitute taking the place of another. It's the picture of something that is innocent taking the place of something that is guilty. It's the picture of an animal bearing the punishment, the wrath, the judgment that somebody else or something else deserves. And of course, that's a picture of the coming Savior, how Jesus will enter into the stage, on, on, enter onto the stage of, of world history and become our Savior. He'll 
the innocent one becomes our substitute and takes the wrath and judgment that we deserve and as he becomes wounded for our transgressions but not only have you got the whole sacrificial system you've got the priests serving in the temple a picture of christ who is the ultimate high priest and you've got all of these symbolisms and pictures in the old testament but you've also got sometimes on occasions in the story of individuals within the old testament a picture of the redemptive work of christ so you've got joseph for example who is raised up and sold for 30 pieces of silver or 20 pieces of silver not 30 jesus sold for 30 joseph sold for 20 but he's sold into slavery and, and then God raises him up and in a sense he becomes the saviour of the world in a physical sense as he secures harvest and stores it up and when a famine comes he's got grain to give to God's people to ensure that they continue and that the saviour of the world is eventually born. But there is a sense in which Joseph is like a little bit like a, he's a picture of the coming saviour. We could think of Jonah who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish in the Mediterranean Sea and somehow the fish miraculously spat him up on the ground again. And Jesus used that as a picture, referred to Jonah as a picture of himself being three days and three nights in, 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 in the belly of the earth or in, in the depths of the earth as he was buried. And um, so in the Old Testament you've got one or two little pictures and they are uh, individuals lives if you will uh, they are stories of redemption and as you look at them and as you read the new testament and as as you reflect on them you can see how they prefigured christ in some way and that i think is true of this chapter in particular in the middle of this little book of ruth now i'm not suggesting that we press every detail in this chapter and say it all must find fulfillment in the New Testament. I think that's foolishness. I think that every chapter of the Old Testament should be understood historically, primarily historically, first and foremost historically. But beyond that, sometimes we can give, be given this little glimpse of, of a coming redeemer, of a coming savior. And I think that's true of this chapter. I think we see a picture of how Christ comes and buys us back out of our misery and sin and pays the price that we owe so that we can be set free and so that we can enter into his riches and be emancipated or set free from our miserable sin and segregation from God. So I want to try and look at this chapter a, a little bit from that perspective and uh, I have a bunch of points that I hope will guide us through this chapter. And the first thing that I want us to look at is just this, the circumstances that unfold in the story are initially pitiful, aren't they? So Ruth's husband has died, her husband, Matlon. She had returned to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was a Moabite. She wasn't from Judah, she wasn't an Israelite, she was a Moabite. She came from the other side of the, of the River Jordan. She was from the other side of the tracks, as it were. Although she was uh, a Moabite, she um, was now part of a family that had been rich at one point. 
She was an Ephrathite, which seems to mean that she was part of the elite. Or the family that she has now become part of was part of the aristocracy around Bethlehem at one point. But this family has now been reduced to poverty. Ruth, who has become part of this family and is really only one of two remaining members of this family, along with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth barely etches out a living for herself, gathering grains from stalks that the reapers have dropped during the course of the harvest, the, the, the harvesting of the barley uh, grain. She's not only poor, but she's hopeless as far as the future is concerned. In those days, there's no social security, there's no pensions. Children are your only hope of survival in old age. But Ruth has no children and neither has her mother-in-law, Naomi. They've been reduced to a life of polite begging. That, that's Ruth's existence, polite begging, asking for permission to, to, to glean at the edges of the fields where the harvesters are gathering in the grain to see if there's a few heads of grain that she can pick up here or there. In today's terms, her husband has died. She doesn't have a job. She is an immigrant. She doesn't qualify for any government benefits. She lives in a shack with her mother-in-law. She begs for food so that she can survive on the street corner. She needs somebody desperately to help her. She longs for someone to love her. She dreams of a husband with whom she could have a family, someone who would take her under her wings. A man of means, wealth, who has everything that she doesn't have. Someone who can transform her life from poverty to at least some measure of security. Someone to give her a future. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, and I maybe I'm reading too much into it, but her circumstances are not so very different from ours spiritually speaking sin had reduced us to a life without god sin leaves us spiritually bankrupt we have nothing by way of spiritual wealth we are hopeless our lives will be spent in the poverty of sin the only thing that we can look forward to as people with a sinful nature and a rebellious heart is an eternity without god hopeless and what we need is someone to help us Someone who can redeem us, someone who can buy us out of this pitiful state that we are in because of our sinful nature. Someone who can pay the debt that we owe, someone who has what we don't have and who can give it for our benefit. Someone who can make us spiritually rich. The tragedy is that we live in a world, I think, and we live in communities where tons and tons of people can't see how spiritually poor and broken and messed up they are and how desperately in need they are of spiritual health. Well, the circumstances uh, were pitiful. And Ruth is really passive. She can't do a lot for herself. That's the second thing. She's gone, at the end of chapter three, she went to the threshing floor to ask someone to help her. That's all she could do. There had been some kind of evening celebration to mark the end of the harvest. Boaz lay down to sleep for the night. 
and he's awakened to find Ruth lying at his feet. And in the language of the day, she asks him to marry her, to fill the role or fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer for her. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if we had time, we could read it, verses 1 to 10, God had made provision for people in Ruth's circumstances. So if among the tribes of Israel, uh, a family found themselves with no children, and all that was left was just a widow, then the nearest relative was obliged to marry the widow and raise up a family in the name of her deceased husband so that the land would continue in the family and so that the husband's name, the name of his family, wouldn't be obliterated from the tribal records of Israel. It may seem a strange practice to us today. It is a bit of a strange practice, I guess, for us today, but we're talking about a culture that's couple of thousand years ago so it looked very different from our culture they think we we think they were a bit strange they looking forward would think that we were a bit strange so it's kind of mutual so don't be too upset about that and this was Ruth uh, and, and this was what Ruth asked Boaz to do she asked him to be her kinsman redeemer but there's a problem and the problem was there was an obstacle in the way Someone else was more closely related to her family than Boaz was. And so before Boaz could proceed, he needed to clear the way. And what I find significant is that all that Ruth could do was ask for help, and then she could do nothing else but sit and wait. He plotted how he would execute his plan to take Ruth to be his bride. He arranged the meeting with the other man in the presence of the elders. He made sure that there was 10 witnesses to ensure that there would be no going back on the decision that was made. He settled it once and for all. She did nothing except for ask for help. That was all she could do, sit and ask for help. He took care of absolutely everything. Chapter. 3 verse 9, spread your wings over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. That was her request. Ruth is unable to redeem herself. She needs someone to take up her case and she found a person willing to do that when she met Boaz. Now, the fact that someone would be interested in helping her with all of her insignificance is quite staggering in itself. But it teaches us, I think, a very important lesson about our redemption. God does it all. The truth is, we can't do anything to make ourselves right in God's sight. We need someone to take up our case, to buy us out of our spiritual misery. God saw to it that his son would become our redeemer. One of the great stumbling blocks for many when it comes to salvation is this idea that we can't do anything to save ourselves. We don't like the idea that we can't earn it or we don't work for it. We always wanna feel as if we have a part to play. We like to think that we can help God by doing good things on occasions. Every other religion except Christianity is a, is a, is a works-based religion. Every other religion, apart from Christianity, involves doing. 
Only Christianity holds out the message that everything that has been that is necessary has been done. Remember, two Latter-day Saints came to our home once and, and started chatting to me, and I trying to chat to them, and I tried to explain to them that uh, their their religion was based on works and merit, and that the New Testament held out a message of grace. It was a gift. And so they said to me, you can't criticize our Book of Mormon unless you read it. And, and, and you can't criticize it. You can't say that it doesn't agree with the New Testament until you've read it. And so they challenged me to read it. And so I said, I'll, I'll, I'll begin to read it. But the first time I come across one hint of a works-based um, salvation, I'm, I'm going to burn this book. And I was no time at all started to read it and I read this verse in it we are saved by grace after we have done all that we can that's not salvation by grace that's not a gift that's we do all we can and God will make up for what we can't do but salvation the salvation of the new testament is that Christ has done it all God sent his son Christ died in our place and the Spirit comes and pursues us and awakens us and somehow applies the work of this, this redeeming work of Christ whereby he takes our penalty and gives us his righteousness. The Spirit applies that to us and it's all by grace from start to finish. Well, the thing that I wanted you to notice about Ruth was that she wasn't able to do anything. She was passive. All she could do was sit and wait because it had all been done by another. The other thing that strikes me is that Boaz was willing or he was prepared. He's willing to help her. He's under no obligation to do so. But that strikes me. The law of God stated that the closest relative, the brother or the closest relative, is responsible to marry the widow and, and to raise a son with her in the name of her deceased husband. But there's somebody more closely related to Naomi's family than Boaz is. There's a, a nearer relative. And it was his responsibility to do something about Ruth's situation, not Boaz. <laughs> Boaz is under no obligation. He doesn't help her because he's under obligation. He could have sat back and said, you know, someone else should take care of this. This isn't my business. I mean, it's his business. It's between them. It's between that family and that family. It's nothing to do with me. But he helped her because he cared about her. He helped her because he was filled with compassion towards her. He was sorry about her sad circumstances. He did something to help Ruth because he wanted to fulfill the revealed will of God as it's revealed in the scriptures. And he knew that it was God's will that widows would be cared for, that families in crisis would be helped. He knew that God wanted the inheritance of families to be preserved amongst the tribes of Israel. All of that had been revealed in the scriptures, in the law of Moses. And so Boaz not only cares about Ruth, but he wants to fulfill the law of God. So he does something to help her. He loved her, he loved God, and he wanted to do something to help her. To meet someone who wants to help the afflicted is quite something. 
They helped, not because they're obligated to, but because they want to, because they care. They're filled with compassion. You know, I, 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 um, I want to encourage you here in this church that as you reach out to people in this community, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you love and because you care. That's important. And, and you see that reflected in Boaz here. But just think about this. God is under no obligation to save us. Why didn't God just forget all about us and let, our, let us go our own determined way and rebellious way to a lost eternity? Why did he initiate a rescue plan? Why did Jesus come from heaven to be our savior? Because God so loved the world. And why did Jesus not only come, but, but why did he go all the way to the cross? Why didn't he disappear in the garden of Gethsemane that night as he waited for the mob to come? He knew they were coming. He knew that Judas had already betrayed him. Why didn't he disappear never to be seen again? Because he wanted to fulfill the will of his father. And it was his will of his father, it was the will of the father that we should be redeemed. So God loves us. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And it's the father's will that we be redeemed. And so we sit here those of us who are Christians, not be, and, and we're converted and, and we've been transformed and our sins have been taken away and we're on our way to heaven, not because God was obligated to help us, but because he loved us and he cared about us and he was filled with compassion towards us. But then think about this, this redemption was pricey. It was pricey, costly transaction, Boaz, would need to support Ruth and Naomi financially. It would be costly for Boaz to purchase Naomi's land. And I don't quite know what was at play there, whether it needed to be sold off to pay off Naomi's creditors, or, or whether she still even owned it, or whether he was buying it back from creditors. I'm not quite sure what the story was, but he needed to buy Naomi's land. And the land would never belong to him, ever. It would belong to Naomi's grandson. It would belong to the first son that he would have with Ruth. And this boy's name was Obed. But it would never be Boaz. Boaz's name would never be on this, the deeds of this portion of land. But despite the cost and the financial outlay and the loss to his personal wealth, Boaz Boaz sets up a meeting with this closer relative and uh, he tells him about Naomi's land and at first this relative is keen to go ahead and purchase it but he says, Boaz says to him, and you know about Ruth, don't you? You know that you'll have to marry her and raise up a family with her in the name of her deceased husband. You know about that, don't you? And at that, the nearer relative draws back and says, I can't do it. It would cost me too much. It would put my own family and estate in, in jeopardy. I can't proceed. Can't go any further. He clearly had the resources this path because he was willing to do it at the beginning. It's only when he heard about Ruth and the fact that it wouldn't be in his name that he balked at it. So he had the resources, but he wasn't willing to go ahead with it. How different is Boaz? Boaz is willing to pay the price. He counts the cost as nothing. In verse 10, he declares his willingness to pay the price of Ruth's redemption. He loves Ruth. 
He wants to help her and he wants to fulfill God's law in redeeming her. Now, it's a rare thing to find people who will help you at their own expense. You know, people who will reflect something of the love of God, people who are willing to do what God did for us, just help others at their own expense, even though it costs them hugely. But Boaz is like that. He's a man after God's heart, and he's willing, it seems, to go out and help Ruth at his own expense. And you think about the cost of redemption. We could spend all morning on this, couldn't we? You think about the cost of our redemption. You look at the bruised and battered face of Jesus. Oh, it was costly. You think about God listening to the agonizing cries of his son on the cross and say, why didn't he send a host of angels to intervene and set his son free? It was costly, hugely costly. But God sent his son into this world because he loved us. And his son gave himself for us. Well, the transaction was proper as well. I want you to notice that Boaz carried out this redemption in such a proper way. He went to the town gate where law was administered. The man was questioned in the front of the elders. So there's nothing underhand about this. He declared, uh, then Boaz declares his intention to the elders. And it seems that a sandal is taken off and exchanged. And somehow that was part of the legal process. We go to a solicitor's office and sign a piece of paper. And, and we think that's normal for them. What was normal was some sort of sandal uh, ceremony uh, where a sandal was taken off and they would look at us and think you sign a piece of paper and the land becomes yours we, they would think that was nonsense it's just in the same way that we think taking off your sandal is nonsense but that's the way that law was transacted 2,000 years ago at least in Bethlehem and of course he redeemed uh, he Boaz redeemed her and the transaction was public properly ratified everyone in town knew what had happened it could never be called into question there were 10 witnesses Boaz made sure that everything was done properly now here is a man of real integrity isn't it there's there's no there's nothing twisted about this individual this man is doing things by the book it's interesting to listening, listen recently to Dominic Grieve. He said that our current political leadership have an integrity vacuum and said that number 10 had been turned in, number 10 Downing Street had been turned into a, a cronyistic cabal, is, is how it has been described. But there's no cronyism here in Ruth chapter 4. Everything's by the book does everything right at huge cost to himself, Boaz. So it is with our Redeemer. The Lord Jesus was confirmed to be the official representative of heaven on more than one occasion, wasn't he? Heaven was opened and a voice was heard, this is my beloved son. Not once, but on several occasions. As for his qualifications, even Pilate stood and said to those who were accusing Jesus, I find no fault in him. He has no sin of his own to atone for. So therefore he can take our place. 
And, and was the payment successful? Did it fully discharge the debt that I owed? Yes, it did. The resurrection proves that as, it, as he comes from the grave because death is the consequences of sin. So if you fully pay off the, 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 the debt of sin, then the consequences can't hold on to you anymore. If you fully paid the debt, the consequences can't hold you anymore because the debt has been discharged. Therefore, death had no option but to release him and let him go. And he comes forth from the grave like a victor, proving that he has paid the price in full of our sin. See, everything has been done properly and it's all been ratified. And there's no question about this Redeemer called Jesus. Well, the last thing, and with this I'm finished. Verse 13 makes it clear that you know, the result was positive. What happy changes were brought about in Ruth's life. Her situation was completely transformed. Boaz was going to marry Ruth. He maintained her, the, the name of her family so that it wouldn't disappear amongst the town's records. Boaz um, loved her and uh, they had a, a child together and she begins to benefit and enjoy from Boaz's wealth and, and his security. And he had what she didn't have, and he shared it with her, and her life was transformed. You know, it, it would make a very interesting uh, study sometime just to look at the differences between the beginning of this book and the end of this book. The book opens with three funerals. It closes with a wedding. The book opens with sadness and sorrow. Now there's gladness and joy. At the beginning of the book, Ruth is a Moabite living in idolatry, but now she's under the wings of God's salvation and she's a key player in the genealogy of Jesus. This story begins where, with Ruth having no family and a deceased husband, and it ends with her having a husband and giving birth to the grandfather of Israel's greatest king. See, the whole situation has changed because Boaz, the redeemer, stepped into the picture. And so it is with those who become Christians. The situation has changed. We're not just simply restored to what Adam was. We become a nation of kings and priests before God. We were sinners and rebels, but we are transformed by God's grace. We used to be strangers, but now we are children. Our names are not just on the rolls of Bethlehem. Our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus makes a difference, doesn't he? Salvation makes a difference. Who could choose to remain without Jesus, lost, hopeless, separated from God? the God that we were created to, to know, when by his grace we could be loved, forgiven, made righteous, brought in, not as servants, not as servants, but as children, beloved of God. The end of this story is amazing. Don't live like a pauper when you could be a king. Well, I've just got one more message on Ruth, and we'll look at at uh, the, the little section right at the end of chapter four uh, sometime again. And I want to thank you very much for your kind attention this morning.